evening, I'm Derek Fuller-Brent, publisher of the Western Standard, and you're watching The Pipeline. Today is June 7th, 2023. I'm joined, as always, by Western Standard opinion editor, Nigel Hannaford. How are you, Nigel? I am well. Good to be here. Great. Also got uh, our other usual co-host, uh, Corey, uh, Western Standard Alberta columnist, Corey Morgan. How are you, Corey? Very good, thanks. Like the purple tie. <clears throat> All right, today we're going to be talking about uh, the coming cabinet from Alberta Premier Danielle Smith on Friday. A new cabinet for Alberta will be unveiled and sworn in. Uh, we've got lots of speculation about who's in, who's out, and what that cabinet's going to look like and what it's really going to be charged with doing. We're going to talk about uh, a memo obtained uh, by Black Locks Reporter and uh, published in the Western Standard from the federal government, the Privy Council Office, which is essentially more or less a wing of the Prime Minister's Office in Ottawa, uh, kind of laying out some, in pretty stark language, the federal government's so-called communication strategy around adverse effects for vaccines. Um, obviously, uh, all vaccines have uh, adverse effects, and the COVID vaccine was no exception, but the communications, or spin, if you will, or propaganda, if you're being less charitable, around this is quite jarring. And we've got the memo itself. Uh, and we're going to get into that. Uh, David Johnson continues his march from esteemed Canadian noble statesman to liberal party puppet. Uh, it's been absolutely jarring to see the very unexpected fall from grace of David Johnson and, and his previously impeccable reputation into... Uh, the point where he's essentially the dancing monkey in Justin Trudeau's Chinese interference parade. And if we have time, we're going to talk about a, a revelation uh, first reported in the Western Standard coming from uh, Alberta Conservative MP uh, Michelle Rempel-Garner, uh, who has obtained evidence that there were more sexual assaults in the uh, COVID hostage hotels established by the federal government. Before we get into all that, though, I want to thank my favorite sponsor, the Canadian Shooting Sports Association. I've been a member of the CSSA for more than a decade because I trust them as Canada's leading firearms rights organization in Canada. If you're a gun owner in Canada, your rights under constant attack by the federal government and other subnational governments across Canada, they want to take your guns away. And they're not stopping at the scary looking ones. They're coming for all of them. They've clear, They've made that absolutely clear. They're just taking one bite of the pie at a time. If you're a member, if you're a gun owner, though, you need to stand together with other gun owners in Canada and join the Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Go to cssa-cila.org or do what I do and Google them and become a member today. Okay, so election's over. Danielle Smith is still the premier. Uh, and she gets to swear in her second cabinet. Her first cabinet, she um, inherited largely from Jason Kenney. She made some changes, uh, removed a few, uh, most notably Jason Nixon, who was kind of Kenney's right-hand man and who had inserted himself into the leadership race in, a, I think, a way that most people found was grossly inappropriate. So he was out. And he was very unpopular with people who opposed mandates and things like that because he was just seen as too close to Kenney. Uh, Rick McIver... Um, a uh, longtime PC minister under Allison Redford and Jim Prentice, um, uh, and then under, again under Jason Kenney. Uh, he was removed, although that was a bit more surprising. Um, and he was the interim leader of the PCs after they lost the 2015 election. There were a number of changes. She brought in some, but it was overall more or less 
still kind of Jason Kenny's captain. Didn't want to rock the boat too, too much. Um, oh, I brought in um, Todd Lowen, uh, who not only just came into the cabin, but came into the caucus itself after being exiled by Jason Kenny. Um, I don't want to get into the specifics yet. We're going to talk about individual ministers you expect to be in or not to be in. Uh, we'll start with you, Corey, on what you generally are expecting from Smith's first new cabinet now. Are you expecting more or less a continuation of the previous cabinet uh, or something entirely new? I, it's a tough question. I mean, whether she's going to want to make her mark now and break away now that she has a mandate or, uh, or carry on. I, I, you know, because she's got a limited caucus now compared to what she'd had before, she doesn't quite have the leeway to, to really uh, uh, shuffle too, too much from, from before. I mean, we've got some inexperienced uh, caucus members. I, I think there's going to be some eye raisers in there, though. I mean, her relationships with different MLAs that are in there that we're only just seeing development because I, I do believe she's going to want to make this hers. As you said, she's been kind of carrying the remnants of Jason Kenney's cabinet for a while. She's going to want some distinctions in there that are definitely her own that she didn't have, I think, going into this election. Nigel, how big a change? Of course, there's some changes necessitated. There are MLAs there who weren't there before, and there are some ministers who were in cabinet before but aren't there now. Um, uh, Ken Kenney's cabinet was particularly urban and in particular, Calgary urban heavy, and that's where nearly all of the losses uh, in the, in the, for the UCP in the electorate came from was in Calgary. So by necessity, some of these people are just not going to be in cabinet. Uh, but how big a change are you expecting this cabinet to be over her previous cabinet, uh, which was, you know, in large measure, but not entirely, still had a significant number of holdovers from Kenny? Well, I'll tell you what I'm expecting, and I'll tell you what I'm hoping. The, uh, my, my expectation is, as you said, so many of the, of the last group, the last cadre have lost the election or retired from the game of politics. But out of the 24 cabinet positions that she announced in October, eight of those are gone. So she has a choice to make a smaller cabinet, but it's not going to be an order of magnitude smaller that you would only have, you know, 20. Some of those, some of those ministries just don't mesh well together. So she's going to have to come up with 20, 21, 22 names, I'm sure. And uh, my expectation is that she will look, favor look favorably on the people who supported her during the run-up. Why wouldn't she? And then secondly, there are some interests that she has to satisfy. There's got to be somebody from Edmonton. The closest one would be a chap from Sherwood Park. Uh, and the Morinville St. Albert. There's, there's two really close yeah. ones, but there's also uh, Spruce Grove, Stony Plain. They, they've got the whole donut around. Somebody it. has to speak for Edmonton. Mm -hmm. So those two individuals have a very high chance. Two or three, actually. There's there's three kind of really close donut yeah. ones. So All so three could end up in cabinet, I'd say. They could. Yeah. So I'm expecting that. What I'm hoping for is a cabinet that uh, recognizes that the fight is going to be on with Ottawa because Ottawa wants to fight. And therefore, we need people with guts to go in there and stand up for uh, for Alberta. And I hope that that's a big part of how she makes her decision on who she puts in there. Okay, so I'm going to kind of go through the list of some of the defeated ministers here. Uh, was Prasad Panda defeated? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so Prasad Panda was a Kenny minister but didn't make it into the Smith cabinet, which surprised me because Prasad Panda had been a Wild Rose candidate in 2012 and 2015. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and he'd stayed out of the leadership, too. He'd been quiet on he, it. Yeah, but. he stayed very neutral, yeah. at least in public. I don't know what happened behind the scenes, but he didn't stay very public. I, I, I was actually surprised not to see him there. But um, So he was defeated, but wasn't a minister when he was defeated. But, you know, he was cabinet material. Jason Copping, he was minister of labor under Kenny and then replaced Tyler Chandra when Chandra was shuffled out of health. Uh, so uh, he was defeated, Calgary Varsity. Tyler Chandra, nail-biter, uh, but he was Minister of Health under Kenny, which obviously very controversial considering everything in COVID, but he was moved to Justice under Smith, where in Justice, he appeared actually to do a pretty good job trying to redeem himself, um, although put in the very awkward position of having to oversee prosecutions of people who were charged for bullshit things during COVID, so very, you know from his ministry in health before, so very weird, but he's defeated. Uh, Nick uh, Nicholas Milliken, Calgary Curry, uh, I think very low-level minister, but defeated as well. Casey Madu, that was probably the biggest defeat of the night. The UCP's sole MLA in Edmonton, not re-elected, uh, loss of the NDP, uh, as you're saying. So they have no seats in Edmonton proper. Jeremy Nixon had a relatively minor-ish, well, but an important one around addictions and whatnot, but considered a fairly minor uh, cabinet post. Defeated. Uh, Jason Luan had a very minor cabinet post. Defeated. Uh, and then, as I said, Prasad Panda, cabinet material-ish, but uh, also defeated. Um, <clears throat> I think we're going to see a smaller cabinet. Uh, Smith actually, I believe, had the largest cabinet in Alberta history. Uh, Canadians in general, we have a big, generally considered the biggest cabinets on the planet in the provinces and federally. Uh, like the United States government gets by with a cabinet that's something like one third the size of Canada's. And you know, the United States government's a, a pretty big beast. Some of that is, I think, Westminster parliaments. You know, the American cabinet is actually fixed by legislation. If you want to add cabinet posts, you got to go to Congress and create a department. Whereas, you know, Canada, Britain, that kind of thing, the prime minister, the premier just snaps his finger and you have created a ministry. Um, and, and so that gets inflation ministry because, you know, you want to make, uh, you want to make someone happy. You make them a minister. They get a pay bump. They get to sit on the front bench. They get bigger office, all sorts of stuff. And you can make geographic regions happier, demographic, religious, racial, whatever it is. And within caucus, you can placate potential internal enemies by making them ministers. And Smith had a lot of enemies when she became leader. So it was no surprise she had a very, very big cabinet. I think it's going to be smaller. Probably not going to. I'd be surprised if it got to a reasonable size. But I, th I think you're right, Nigel, that it, it'll, it'll be smaller, just not orders of magnitude smaller. Um, so it's not that she has to fill all of these gaps if she creates less gaps here. But let's uh, let, let's get your guys' bets on who's in, who's out. Um, out of the uh, out of the lineup there between the new MLAs and re-elected MLAs who are not currently in the cabinet that went into this election. So with you, Nigel, uh, who do you think is in? Who do you think is out? Quoting from my column that I published an hour ago. I should read that. You certainly, everybody should read it. Agriculture Minister Nate Horner, one of the, the Horner dynasty of uh, political operatives at both the provincial and the federal level, the, the rancher, put him in finance. I was certainly, was it uh, Doug Horner, was he uh, his uncle or how are they related? Because it's part of the Horner dynasty. Yeah, yeah. but they're tiny. I can't yeah. remember what the they're related. Is. I'm just I know sure. they're related. Yeah. But Doug Horner was actually finance minister under Redford, and he was a disaster. Probably the second worst finance minister in Alberta after Joe Cece. 
Uh, but it's but, not congenital. No, well, they're different <laughs> men, and they ha- and they get to stand on their own. And I know a lot of his caucus colleagues speak very highly of Nate Horner. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I know he. I think he's one of the names that uh, uh, bandied about. If he doesn't get health, he's going to get something high profile. Brian Jean, go to justice. He's one of only three lawyers, and generally justice goes with the solicitor general. Yeah. And solicitor general doesn't doesn't legally have to be a lawyer. I was going to say it's should absolute necessity. It, it should be a lawyer. Yeah. It's it's uh, it's generally a bad idea, I think, to mix sometimes your profession with the ministry. Uh, former doctors tend to make really bad health ministers. Uh, Former generals and admirals sometimes make bad defense ministers. But when it comes to justice, you really need to be a lawyer. And that used to historically not be a problem because two-thirds of the politicians used to be lawyers. That's not the case anymore. Mm -hmm. No, it... it, But yeah, he's one of three lawyers, so I think there's a good chance it goes to justice. uh, And, you know, a lot of the fight with Ottawa is going to be over legislation, over whether this can be done or that can be done. Is this constitutional? How do we take it forward? Do this? We're going to do our own thing. They're going to sue us. You know, you need somebody. And I think Gene has got the, um, I think he's got the intestinal fortitude to actually take that on and uh, won't need to be, wouldn't need to be handheld through the whole process. The other one possible one for him, I'd say, would be health because you know, he, he's always di- uh, talked more than a normal conservative would about health care. That was one of the reasons he re-entered provincial politics after the death of his son and yes. he was upset with the health care system. Yeah. That being said, uh, if you want to make sure someone is not able to ever challenge you for the leadership of your party, you make them health minister because no health minister ever does well because health is a disaster in Canada and it always will be a disaster in Canada. So you you want to kill someone on your side, uh-huh. you put them in health. Yeah, that and social services. Yeah. Well, I don't, I, I, I don't want to kill Brian Jean that bad, so I'm <laughs> putting him in the uh, Okay, um, one of the, the other big the other big fight that she's got on her hand if she chooses to accept it is to sort out education. Right now, the uh, the ATA basically runs education the Alberta Teachers Association, runs education in Alberta. Uh, it's got so so much so that uh, they even they, they even endorse their own candidates for local school boards, mm-hmm. where they think it's... So it's a peculiar situation where you have the teachers getting on the school board so they can adjudicate how education is, is done. The AT is yeah. behind all that. They were a huge uh, third-party player in the election. You saw the ads, you know, stand for education. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I, my fear is that if this government doesn't get a handle on education and stop turning, allowing the education blob to turn out social justice warriors every year through graduation. So is this a roundabout saying you think there's a particular person going to education? Yeah, I, I, would, I am saying that um, Adriana Legrand should uh, leave education and take on... Uh, um, health and the Demetrius Nicolaides, who did so well in advanced education, should take on mm. the big thing, the education K-12 system. Interesting. Well, it's a tough call for him, but uh, I think he could do it. Well, I don't know if Nigel stole your thunder or not, but I don't know what your list is. Who do you think is in? Who do you think is out? Uh, you know, my, my list is a similar number of people that are clearly going to be cabinet material. Or, or, and I should also say, and, and, uh, and people who also might stay out. Yeah, and, and where they might go was... Uh, little different. Yes. Uh, actually, a name, though, that didn't come up. Really. Well, you get so one point if you get them in, and you get three <laughs> points if you name the ministry. <laughs> I'm thinking I'm going to go on an odd one is Rick McIver for finance. 
Right. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to see somebody who's not afraid of actually pursuing a bit of austerity, he was known as Dr. No in, in uh, municipal politics. He also mm -hmm. is good for quelling the PC wing of the party. I mean, she's got a lot of unity issues still to work mm -hmm. on right now. Uh, I think McIver back into the cabinet fold and in a senior position could uh, could do that. I, I think that's, that, that is one thing I'm willing to say with an almost certainty is McIver's going back into cabinet. Yeah, but and it's a matter of where. Uh, likewise with, with Jean and, uh, Sonny and, uh, uh and, uh, uh, Rebecca Schultz is saying, I mean, again, they were leadership contenders who stayed on, they've been civil, they're, they're going to get uh, cabinet spots. I mean, uh, Sonny might go into an associate minister position or something like that, but I think Schultz, she's got a, a lot of uh, gumption and I, I know Nigel's column. Uh, Schultz is, I think, going to get a pretty senior post. I think she, yeah. is she one of the other lawyers, one of the three lawyers? Is she a lawyer? I'm not aware of that. I'm not, think, sure. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I don't know. Uh, the other one is um, uh, Red, Deer, uh, Red Deer South. Um, Stefan? Jason Stefan. Jason, Jason yeah. Stefan. He's currently mm -hmm. on the back benches, but he supported her in the leadership. Uh, and he's one of only three lawyers, which, you know, puts him on... Uh, on a short list. I don't know if Stefan would go into justice or not. I don't know yeah, about justice. Be a bit of a leap, but he, he might go into cabinet. Uh, going uh, oddly with a new name, like uh, getting around that donut in Stony Plain, Cyril Turton has kind of quietly put his time in as a backbencher, but he's been solid, actually. You know, he's mm -hmm. he's a reasonable guy. He's personable and, and bright. And uh, I like his name. It's, it's a cowboy name. Yeah. Right? So I, I, I don't know if you'd see him again in one of those top roles of finance or health mm -hmm. or something. But I suspect we could see him in there. And, and, well, and he's in the Edmonton Donut. Exactly. Which she is needs, another good short list. Of she needs some strength in there. And, and uh, you know, municipal affairs, perhaps, or something like that. Transportation. Uh, we might see Turton put into something like that. Um, anyone big or prominent that you expect not to see in any snubbings. Well, I mean, I don't think we're going to see Jason Nixon in, even though he got his seat. <laughs> Surprise! A conservative one, Rimby Rocky <laughs> Mountain House Sundry. Yeah, his his cabinet time is is done. Um, I don't see any relationships so soured. Perhaps aside from that, where it was just still so tightly tied to the Kenny government that she would completely eliminate necessarily them from cabinet. I mean, I, I none they're standing out to me. Nigel, I think the, the Jason Nixon's one of the big question marks over this. I think he's generally considered competent for cabinet, mm -hmm. um, but you know, ma managed to make a lot of internal enemies over the years. He's a very elbows up political player and seen as the enforcer. He was the tie domi of Jason Kenney and very much tied to kind of the particularly the co even though he wasn't health minister, seen he was an instrumental guy during the Kenney government and kind of got the stink of mandates or lockdowns on him even even though it's not his ministry um he'd be a controversial move i think to bring back well, he but, he, but he but he is he's competent uh do you think we're going to see him back in no but i will give you the thinking that would make it possible for you to get past those old animosities there is an expression that you keep your friends close and your enemies closer all right, he has not been an enthusiastic supporter of Danielle Smith. Left out there in the outer part of the solar system, who knows what mischief he might get up to. So, bring him in. You want a, you, you said he was an enforcer. That's certainly the impression that uh, we've had from the news clippings. You're going to need an enforcer when you're dealing with Ottawa. Maybe there is a place that man's voice at that table when they're plotting how to deal with Mr. Trudeau. 
So that would be the rationale that you would use if you were making the case for bringing back Mr. Nixon into cabinet. That mm -hmm. said, I can't see it happening. But I, I would, you certainly need that kind of uh, bullsiness to, uh, to, for, for the next uh, couple of years. So there's one, one cabinet post I want to talk about, and it's a weird cabinet post. It's one that premiers often take for themselves. It's one Kenny took for himself. That's intergovernmental affairs. On almost every province, that's a boring ass job. It's more or less the scheduler for meetings with other premiers and between ministries. It's a, it's generally a bullshit job, mm -hmm. but it has the potential to be a very important job in Alberta. Uh, although I think you probably want to change the name of it. It's essentially the minister for fighting Ottawa. Uh, I don't know. If Time for our, our own Ministry of Defense. <laughs> Minister of Ottawa Now Defense. we're talking. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you come up with a sexier name for it. It's the Alberta Sovereignty Ministry or whatever it is. Uh, but, you know, Smith, uh, normally it goes, it's called intergovernmental, intergovernmental, intergovernmental Affairs, and it goes to someone and it's a consolation prize. It's a, it's a hyper junior uh, post. Uh, or it gets carried by the premier and it's like a, you know, can he use it as a symbolic thing that I'm going to fight Ottawa. Uh do you think we see this be broken out as its own ministry again and beefed up into a more prominent senior position? Or do you think it gets kind of carried along as a little attendum? The symbolism of Daniel Smith taking that particular post would be significant. Well, Kenny did it, though, and it didn't really say much after the initial announcement. Well, that's because it was Jason Kenny who... who made the decisions that he made. But I, I'm not sure it actually says that much because it all there's kind of two sides, there's two ways you could look at it fairly. One is it's so important that the premier carries it. The other is it's so unimportant that the premier can also carry it and didn't actually assign anyone to focus on it as their full-time job. And I think both of those are probably fair ways to look at it, Corey. Well, if we were looking at it, so I'm sorry, Corey, go oh, ahead. No, that's okay. Uh, I was just going to say, if you we were making the argument in New Brunswick, yeah, maybe you could say that. But Alberta and Ottawa, the lines are already drawn. So we know it's not an insignificant thing. Well, I know that, but Kenny took it and it was, you know, he would issue some terse news releases and huff and puff at a podium once in a while, but... There was no one focused on it full time. So actually, maybe I'll, I'll kind of just rephrase the question for you, Corey. Does it say more about its importance if the premier takes it personally? Or does it say more if the premier says, I'm putting someone in charge of this and it's their job full time uh, to, you know, man the ramparts against Ottawa? No, I, I still think it takes, it's more important if the premier takes it themselves and, and they can go head to head. I mean, not just the optics of I'm going to take on Trudeau and whomever that might be, and it'll look better for the premier down the road too. I mean, that always pulls well with those types of battles. If she does something, the problem was Kenny took it and didn't do anything with it. Yeah. Uh, you know, he postured, he talked, and, and I think Premier Smith sounds like she's ready to go to battle. And it gives her an out to reduce the cabinet a little as well. When There's no sense bloating it more when we've already got an issue of a, a large cabinet. I just really don't think the premier taking a ministry says it's more important. Because, you know, a government that's hyper-focused on finance, the premier doesn't also take the finance role. They understand you still need someone who's focused on it full-time. The premier is the, the, the premier still will talk about finance, taxes, spending, uh, or if you're c committed to health. You know, health, Smith did a lot on health, or at least focused a lot on health uh, between her election as UCP leader and election generally. She didn't take the health ministry. She talked about it a ton. So I, I don't know, being intergovernmental affairs, I don't think uh, means she talks more or less about it. I, I think it actually says more if it's a standalone 
So someone's it's someone's job to focus on it all day, every day, and she could talk about it as much or as little as she likes one way or another. Uh, potentially, but I mean, again, it's just almost a duplication. I mean, if there's one minister there, they might steal her thunder a little if it comes to battles with Ottawa. I mean, she doesn't have to make an announcement that I'm taking this ministry. It's just a matter of I'm not recreating it. I think it should be called the State Department. <laughs> Next to the defense, uh, I won't get too into it because we're going to waste all our time. But I, I think we should just totally reorganize cabinet. We should have a ministry of the interior, and you can consolidate a ton of current bullshit ministries into the ministry of the interior. Um, and then you have a state department, everything that's looking out, you know. I, well, yeah, yeah, you may be right, Derek. One thing is for sure, we are looking at a very special time in Alberta's relationships with Ottawa. It isn't always been this adversarial, but now it is. So that's what's going to define, first of all, the next few years, and secondly, how she composes her cabinet. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, speaking of Ottawa, let's go to Ottawa for a little bit here. Uh, there's a part of me that feels bad for David Johnson right now. Um, you, you know, it's not elder abuse the way the Democrats are using Joe Biden. I feel like that's just like, Come on, let great-grandpa retire. He's senile. You're abusing him by putting him up there. David Johnson still got his marbles. He, he seems to still be fully clicking along. But I feel like he was almost abused by being put in this position. He should have obviously said no. I actually think he probably accepted it with the best of intentions. And even if he was doing a good job, which I don't think he is, but even if he was... The perception is that he cannot, because he clearly has too many ample conflicts of interest in his relationship with Justin Trudeau. Um, so he's taken all of this abuse, and I think rightfully so. Uh, and then Parliament voted, uh, a majority of Parliament, all the opposition voted for an NDP motion. And you know, the NDP are not known as the toughest critics of the Liberals around. But they voted demanding he step aside. And he refused, saying, well, but my mandate comes from the Prime Minister. All but saying... I'm Trudeau's man. You can't fire me because you didn't hire me. I don't work for Trudeau. I don't work for the representatives of the people. I work for <laughs> Trudeau. And then uh, I believe it was yesterday he appeared at a parliamentary committee. And it was just, uh, it was sad. Because he, he's a man who's been generally held in great esteem. I mean, he might be the definition of a Laurentian elite, but a man of genuine public service. And just totally unable to answer questions satisfactorily. He's now... Uh, spending oodles of uh, taxpayers' money on hiring Navigator, a crisis communications firm, to try and rehabilitate his image and what he's doing. Um, it's a fall far from uh, it's a fall far fall from grace. Uh, Nigel, is there any way at all for Johnson to salvage his reputation at this point? Not for most Canadians. Like you, I started off feeling sorry for him, wishing that he hadn't taken it on, understanding that he probably did it with the best of intentions as a national service, a former governor general, uh, who would be who would come in and, and with his reputation, look at everything and then issue an authoritative report. But the more this has gone on, the more I am less sorry because I'm thinking, what part of conflict of interest is it that you don't understand the appearances? He can be, and probably is, entirely honest and dispassionate in his considerations. 
I am prepared. I have no reason to think otherwise. But look at the people that he has now gathered around him. Uh, one of the... Uh, let me just give you some chapter and verse here. There was a, there was a particular individual, Sheila R. Block, the lawyer who acts as general counsel for Johnson's office while he's been investigating China. Turns out she's a major liberal donor, as recently as this fall. Uh, retired Supreme Court Justice Frank Yakabuki, who was... Uh, Yakabuchi, pro probably. Uh, well, I'm, that one kills me, too. Don't, don't spend much time with Italians, sadly. Anyway, Johnson hired him to clear him of having a conflict of interest. Well... Johnson was on the Trudeau Foundation. The Italian, Iacopucci, was on the Trudeau Foundation. And they've been buddies since university. And they've been buddies since universities, and he works at the same form, same firm as Sheila R. Block. He literally I, has a conflict of interest with the guy he hired to determine if he has a conflict of interest. Yeah. It's, it's you know, it's madness. And there's one more here, Morris Rosenberg, who wrote the report for the government saying there was no foreign interference. Well, bless my soul, he is a former president and CEO of the Trudeau Foundation. Now, you would not actually... By the way, just to give credit where his credit is due, I am relying on two sources here. One is Blacklocks, they're just amazing. And also the, uh, the Toronto Sun, who I think they probably relied on Blacklocks as well. But I mean... What we have here is a little group of people. They all swim in the same swimming pool, never mind whether they ski at the same resorts. Uh, they all drink the same bath water. And bless my soul, if they don't all think that certain things are self-evidently natural and obvious, when in actual fact to everybody on the outside, they are not. That is the problem that Mr. Johnson has put himself into. He is just has such infinite trust in this little group of Laurentian elites that he can't imagine that anybody else would have a problem with it when, in fact, a lot of people do. Corey, I'm going to ask you an impossible question. Just do, do your absolute best. If there was no way for David Johnson to step down, if it was illegal on pain of death, he must continue to do the job. What do you think he could do to salvage his reputation and the and any belief by any reasonable person in Canada that the, the exercise he's conducting is actually going to be fair, thorough, and proper? Well, he would have to come up with an exercise that appears thorough and proper, and he hasn't even done that. I mean, if he'd come forward with a well-prepared, you know, inexperienced statement, statesman, and his performance under questioning has been appalling. Oh. He, he doesn't know the answers to questions. He's admitting that he didn't thoroughly investigate things. He didn't even make a phone call to Han Dong before clearing him. And yeah. again, Han Dong, those, those are allegations. Who knows if it's true? But he didn't even talk to the guy. No. And so, I mean, he, he could have, if he'd put out a detailed report that looked like, you know, document your inquiries, your conclusions, then people could say, okay, the guy gave it a very serious investigation and he came to the conclusions. Might not agree with the conclusions, but it was a genuine effort. But we're not seeing evidence that he even did that. So yeah, if he's stuck in it for life, I'd say, okay, you know what? People aren't satisfied with my conclusions. Give me another four weeks to put this together. 
try to get some other people to help him with it then and have a good solid report to give out because that looked like something a high schooler would have put out as an assignment not a man of, of his stature it looks like he googled everything and you know the other thing that he needs does and doesn't have and this is what he would ask for if he was put in the position that you're addressing from Derek's question. The reporter does not have the power to subpoena mm -hmm. anybody. So he's never going to be able to talk to the people who really know what's going on and get them to fess up. All we got was, uh, we don't need an inquiry, and I can't tell you why. Yeah. Take my word for it. I'm sorry. Enough. No one's word is good that good enough. Okay. Uh, we're going to stick in Ottawa for a little bit here. Uh, I don't want to go back to COVID. I, I I got so sick of it. I know some of you probably want to talk you about it forever. You were sick of COVID? I never got sick from COVID, but I'm sick of COVID. Uh, but, I mean, there's still some there's still some accounts to settle here. And uh, Blacklock's reporter, uh, you know, who we, we, uh, we contract to do a lot of great investigative journalism, they found a doozy of a memo. So bear with me, folks. There's a bit here, but it's, this is really interesting stuff. So uh, this was a secret memo um, for the Privy Council Office. The Privy Council Office is essentially the bureaucratic wing of the Prime Minister's office. And it states that uh, injuries and vaccines caused by the COVID-19 vaccine, I should say vaccines, there's quite a few different ones, uh, those injuries or deaths have the potential to quote uh, to quote uh, have the potential to shake public confidence. Adverse effects following immunization news reports and the government's response to them have the potential to shake public confidence in the COVID nineteen vaccination rollout. Said the memo titled "Testing Behaviorally Informed Messaging in Response to Severe Adverse Events Following Immunization." That's a very bureaucratic title if I've ever heard one. Uh, so Blacklock's reporter got this through an access to information requests um, approximately five months after the Department of Health granted its first license to the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, uh, vaccine. Uh, he, here's a quote from the memo that really stood out. The current study proactively tested the impact of various messaging strategies delivered through different messengers in response to a hypothetical adverse effect following immunization. Uh, it goes on to say that um, they need to minimize the perception or impact of deaths or injuries, uh, stating that uh, there's a chance of it happening. The chance of happening to me is one in a million rather than it has happened five different times. Now, it's one of those cases where both will be factually correct. Uh, you know, if you have five million people, uh, or a, a million people, uh, so five deaths and, uh, you know, it, it's a way, of, it's, it's the same numbers. It, it, it's not lying, but it's spin. Um, and I guess that's, that's the discussion here is, is, was this, uh, governments message everything. They spin everything. I mean, that's just politics. That's just government. There is literally nothing that comes out of the government, no matter how benign, that is not spun, that is not messaged. But does this cross the line from kind of the usual government spin into propaganda? Nigel? Yes, it does. Um, they knew that there were people who were going to be harmed by these vaccines. They knew that then. Uh, the vaccines at the time that this was all being done were 
not fully tested. They couldn't be. There was a big rush on it. Uh, and they knew there was, there was something was going to go wrong. So they said, well, when it does, we still need to keep control of the situation. We want everybody to, to, to uh, do as they're told and shut up. So what are we going to say? And this is the kind of discussion that would go on in any communications department about, well, just a second, let's choose positive words, not, not words that condemn ourselves. Uh, but what's the proof of, the, of the, the pudding, I guess? Those people who doubted them in May 2021 can now look and see what the Public Health Agency has reported in Canada, namely that out of the nearly $100 million, 100 million doses administered, there were 20,000 serious adverse effects, including uh, more than 400 deaths. Now, what they, when they announce those numbers, which I believe, uh, they also say, but of course we have no evidence that the death was connected to the, the vaccine. And Although they, they certainly made no bones about connecting any death during COVID to COVID. Remember uh, we had the story of kid who died of uh, brain cancer in Okotoks. Yeah. And he happened to have COVID when he was dead. The Alberta government that said, uh, that was a COVID death. Yeah. And, and people would go in for one thing and be tested while they were in there. And they got thing. shot at a lockdown, anti-lockdown protest. They probably call it a COVID death. Yeah, that's So, you know, there was a very definite intention at the outset to deceive. That's what that says. And that's propaganda. Uh, Corey, uh, okay, let's try and untangle personal feelings about, about this stuff from oh, it. Oh, I have no personal feelings on this. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> more of a hypothetical question. Um, I mean, and the number of adverse effects and deaths is widely disputed. Uh, there is some evidence the government's not been, uh, provincial governments have not been particularly forthright about this. But let's speak in the hypothetical for a moment that is relevant to this. You know, if you are, you know, you're, you're in charge of the government here. And yeah, there's going to be deaths from this vaccine, but you believe that on balance, this is hugely, it'll, it'll save far, far more lives, that it is objectively a public good. Would it be wrong to lie about it to get a higher vaccine uptake if you know, you got the evidence in front of you and it is clear as day, it's black and white, this is going to on net save a lot of lives. Is it a good idea to tell, is it just a white lie to? No, it's still wrong to lie to the public. Make your case better then based on those facts to make it to the public. There's some people that they're never going to accept vaccinations as being safe or effective. There's still people clamoring about, you know, the, the, the false story of vaccines causing autism from childhood vaccines years ago. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get through to them anyway. And we've seen they will lose their jobs. They will do anything to avoid being vaccinated. So there's no sense spinning to try and change your approach to them. Anyhow, uh, just on a case of morality, I, I, I know when you start taking that leap thinking, well, I'll lie to them for their own good. We know that can really really go downhill really quickly. And, and as, as Nigel stuck up too, I mean, we're seeing, uh, and this is where their lie could catch up with them. I mean, we're seeing some legal compensations have been paid out into the millions now to some people for vaccine injuries. If it's getting determined that the government hid some of the potential risk from these, those settlements are going to go up a lot more. And if they'd just been truthful to begin with, rather than trying to spin 
they could say, look, we put the risk. It was a very minimal risk, a very outlying risk, and, and the benefits gained, they could claim, or, you know, I don't want to argue with the viewers, mm -hmm. but from, from reducing COVID deaths were worth it, fine. But now that it looks like there was deception, boy, this, this is far from a finished issue now. But it's a fine line. I mean, the memo did not recommend lying. No. Um, <laughs> it just recommends a very strong spin on things. A tilt on things. Yeah. And as I said, like, you know, the difference between uh, one in a million or, you know, five people out of five million, it's not, that's not a lie. That's just, you know, statistics, damn statistics and lies. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, it is technically, it's factual. It's just a different way of looking at it. Is that wrong? Yeah. Why is just, that wrong? Just don't sugarcoat it. it, it, it Put it out with confidence and still say these are the numbers. And I can strongly recommend you do this. I mean, put your pressures on. You know, I really think it would be responsible for people to do this and things like that. But if you're going to start, you know, this is all the benefits and then quickly mumble, this is the risk. That's not, that's already hiding a risk. And I, I don't see it personally as a moral stance to take. Uh, Nigel, I think, you know, for most people, COVID is in the rear of a mirror. They don't want to relitigate it anymore. Uh, I don't. I wouldn't think there's going to be any real consequence in Ottawa for this, right? Probably not. Not a, not with this government. I think if there is a consequence, it's just long-term um, distrust. It's just long-term distrust that, I mean, it's unlikely in our lifetimes we'll see another thing like this again. But it could it could absolutely happen, and I, I think it's going to this kind of thing reduces people's trust in vaccines in cases where it is a good vaccine and it's appropriate, like, you know, there's a lot of people who uh, weren't anti-vax as a policy. They're generally pro-vaccine, but uh, had questions about this. Hasn't been tested enough. Uh, are the companies, uh, these pharmaceutical companies being open enough? Are governments being open? And they were hesitant and got it thinking, okay, I, I guess I'll, I'll try, I'll do it. Then they look at this stuff and they say, not next time. And it'll be the same thing, I, I think, with... That. All the time. It'll be the same thing with lockdowns because I know some of our viewers will disagree with this. I think there are theoretically extreme enough circumstances that could justify a lockdown. And I, I hate saying that, but I mean, you know, like Hollywood style apocalypse, uh, bubonic plagues. Okay. The problem is next time there, uh, if, if this happens again in living memory, not enough people are going to believe it. They're going to say, I remember the last time you told us to stay in our houses. Walmart did fine. Screw you. I'm going out. And it, it, so it just damages trust in these institutions uh, that theoretically need to be trusted in, in, in certain circumstances. And they've now, they've clearly squandered and wasted that trust. They have. And, you know, isn't it interesting that in the same week, in the same pipeline program, we're talking about two issues where public trust has been seriously undermined by the actions of the government. I mean, this is not a bunch of little ultra ultra people running around saying, hey, you can't trust the government. The government has appointed a special rapporteur who should have known better. Mm -hmm. Now nobody trusts the outcome, anything that he says as a consequence. Yeah. And now you've got a story like this. Uh, you know, they knew stuff that they weren't telling us. They could have been straight up, but they chose not to. It gets, it, over the course of a year, it just gets worse and worse and worse. Yeah. All right. Uh, we have just a tiny, tiny bit of time to sneak in under the line. The latest rape, COVID rape hotel. <laughs> uh, perhaps, perhaps that's overstating the case.
too much. Perhaps not. We don't know. But it's sexual assaults, and that's a broad term that can mean bad to really, really bad. Um, so uh, Michelle Rempel-Garner, Calgary uh, conservative MP, using her privilege as a member of parliament to demand questions from the government, got some interesting stuff. So the uh, Public Health Agency of Canada says it's aware of two sexual assault complaints filed by travelers. I love how they say travelers. Right, let's back up. These are not travelers. They were detainees. These are people kidnapped by the federal government. Western Center was actually the very first media outlet to break this. Uh, people will be returning from uh, overseas and you don't have a vaccine passport. The federal government literally kidnapped you if you didn't willfully come with them. And uh, they were snatching people up from the from airports. We had one who was snatched up from the Calgary airport, I believe. Uh, uh, whisked away in a vehicle, put in one of these COVID prison hotels, and they didn't even inform the family. The family's like, where the hell is it? Just whisked away, essentially kidnapped without violating the criminal code, just kidnapped. Um, and so people are put in these so-called quarantine places. Uh, so I guess I, I couldn't even finish my quote because the federal government refers to them as travelers. No, they were, they were prisoners. These are prisoners who have not been charged with any real crime. Um, but they were aware of two sexual assault complaints filed by travelers uh, while abiding by the government's hosting quarantine measures since March, uh, March 1st, 2020. Um, so uh, Garner says that this week in response to an order paper question, I filed the government revealed that a sexual, a second sexual assault against a traveler allegedly occurred at one of the government quarantine hotels nearly three months later. Um, this is because the federal health minister, Patty, uh, Andrew, she told parliament uh, that she'd taken actions to prevent further assaults. Nothing else is going to happen. Uh, rape hotels are not a thing, but turned out there there was another one. I guess we don't have the quarantine uh, quarantine jails anymore, Corey. But uh, I don't know. What does this say? Government said no, uh, no more rapes. Uh, no, no. Yes, we got to be quick. But it's it's appalling if the government's going to seize people, if they're going to detain people. That makes them fully responsible for the safety of the people they've snatched up. And they drop the ball and they put those people at risk and, and perhaps into harm. And it's, it's, it's got to be investigated and it's, it's uh, just unconscionable. I uh, think we're going to get really here much. I, I haven't seen this reported anywhere else yet in the media outside the Western Standard. Uh, maybe it's been picked up somewhere. But uh, I don't know, Court, uh, Nigel. I think is there any consequence for this? Liberals kidnapping people, putting them in hotels where they're getting sexually assaulted? You're asking whether much comes of it when the police investigate the police. I doubt that there will be much consequence. The police investigating the police. It sounds a lot like a special rapporteur. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to wrap it up there. We're right at the wire. Nigel, Corey, thank you very much. And thank all of you for joining us today. Uh, if you're not yet a member of the Western Standard, go to westernstandard.news. Click on membership. It's only $10 a month or $100 a year for unlimited access to all Western Standard content. Thank you very much for joining us on the pipeline today, and God bless. Here's an update on commodity prices in Lethbridge for today. Cash barley is unchanged at 412, feed wheat is steady at 412, and corn is down $2 at 404 per metric ton. In the milling wheat markets, July Minneapolis futures dropped 16 and 3 quarter cents to 7.99 and 3 quarters, with local harder at spring bid for June movement at 10.50 per bushel. Looking at canola, nearby futures are up 50 cents at 6.70.40 per ton with delivered values for June movement at 15.42 per bushel. In the pulse markets, nearby red lentil prices are trading at 33 cents per pound 
and yellow peas are holding at 11.25 per bushel. And in the cattle markets, August live cattle slipped 60 cents at 173.90 per hundredweight. For more information on pricing or picked up options, give me a call at 403-394-1711. I'm Matt Musicum at Marketplace Commodities, accurate real-time marketing information and pricing options. Canadian Shooting Sports Association, without the CSSA, our gun rights would have been taken long, long ago. These guys are on the front lines helping to draft smart and intelligent firearms regulations and legislation in Canada and more importantly educating the public about how we keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people. To become a member it's absolutely worth every penny. You can become a Western Standard member for just $10 a month or $99 a year for unlimited access.